All right, Kiss Army. Welcome to the Kiss FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. Nothing is into your head. I hope you don't do any damage. This is a Kiss-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to episode 67 of the KISS FAQ Podcast. I'm Julian Gill, one of your hosts, the admin on the KISS FAQ Message Board. Joining me today, the panel consists of Alex Bagboy. Welcome back. Thank you. Ken, 69th Blizzard. Always good to see you, sir. Thank you. And Marcus Almighty from the Great White North. Hello. Mark. So, guys, we were talking about this topic um, a little bit, and... 1979, 1980. It's kind of a weird period in history, and no one's allowed to talk about the elder on this show today. Um, it's for me. It's it's a weird time for the band. I mean, obviously, getting into them after that, I didn't have to experience what was essentially them going Vegas. I didn't have to open up a magazine in 1979 and see Peter Chris with green, fluffy things as his costume. <laughs> Gene with, well, what looks like an erector set holding up his cape sometimes, and Paul wearing, well, what was that? Um, you know, and, and Ace. It's pretty weird. It's Vegas. It's odd. But when you get to the music, the music's straightforward. Not disco album for Dynasty, whereas Paul would love to say Dynasty. Um, so it's it's a weird thing. Ken, this was your idea, so what are you kind of thinking on seventy nine eighty, other than it's a weird period. Well, other than it's a weird period is is the probably the oversaturation of kiss and merchandising, which led them down a uh, a road that uh, people started seeing them as not dangerous anymore, um, and starting to go like you said, you know Vegas. The costumes they they hired a new designer, I believe, uh, costume designer, and uh, they used you know the colors from the solo albums and that sort of thing and blended those in. Um, plus the music, um, you know, was changing too. Uh, of course, they're trying to change and maybe follow the trends for the first time. I think they're following rather than leading, as they did maybe you know the last album was love gun really and if you count you know side four of alive two you know they were rocking it out and still doing their own thing and then all of a sudden you know here comes we're gonna write a disco song and uh, <laughs> uh even though the rest of Dyn you know dynasty is technically it's 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 rock it's you know semi-hard rock i would say and it was, you know, well-written songs, and they were trying to write songs that would be hits on the radio at this point. Um, so they're trying to write hits. They're putting out, you know, the dolls, the lunch boxes, anything and everything. And uh, it just kind of, I think, turned a lot of fans, up, you know, away. Original or early fans that uh, got started with them either alive or before alive. Yeah, 1979. Look, you've got Highway to Hell. You've got uh, Killing Machine, or whatever that was called in whichever country you're from. It has two titles. Um, you've, you've got a lot of harder music coming out, and then there's Peter's Green Little Fluffy Tassels. So you go from Love Gun and Rocket Rides to 
save your love. You know, it's 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 kind of taking it down, Alex. You know, you know uh, f- from the village people perspective and those costumes. Hey, I mean, you had 1980s can't stop the music with all the secrets and stuff too. But you know, actually, it's funny. There was an interview with David Hodo, and he hated he hated all the glitter. But um, but no, you know, I, as I, mean, I was a kid, seeing the clip of you know Shona something that was on the extreme close up video. Um, that kiss it had and so I remember thinking like that was really cool and so I guess for me as a, as a kid growing up you know one of my first uh, bootleg concert videos was the Largo 1979 show um, and being being living in Maryland uh, having been to the Capitol Center before it was torn down you know it was, it was kind of cool to like hey this is I've been here and stuff and you know to see the full star stuff so um, the album you know I love the Dynasty album it was one of the first ones I picked up on CD um you know, Christmas kind of a weird song. Extra Gene songs are just kinda of weird on that whole album. That and um extra eyes. But then like Magic Touch is, is excellent. And of course, you know, when Paul did it live in two thousand six, you know, he definitely did a nice beefier version of the song. So, you know, I think there was potential. I mean obviously they were trying to do that whole commercial success and um they had already like plateaued at that point, you know, the end of seventy seven, kind of seventy eight with the merchandise and everything and so it was either they were going to have continued success or the ship was going to start to sink. And I think, you know, we saw the ship kind of starting to sink just a little bit at that point. And there was a recession in 1979. There's there's a good issue of Billboard that's got an article on KISS. KISS bucks the trend and is going out on tour with their mammoth set. And you've got Paul, I believe it was anyway, um, you know, saying, we don't care. We're going to take the fun out on the road. You, you know, because we know it's a downtime or something to that effect. You know, check it out online. Google Books has tons of, uh, you know, issues of Billboard. It's a great a great source for you to go. You can waste many hours digging those up. But it, it was kind of like in your face that we're going to go out on the road no matter what. We're going to take our the biggest show. I mean, millions of dollars that it costs to develop that stage show for the return of Kiss. And it's also kind of weird that... It was the return of Kiss and when they'd never really gone away. Mark, what's your take on, you know, Dynasty as such, you know, whether it's the album, whether it's the costumes, whatever? Well, um, I always thought it was a really sort of interesting time. I mean, they did have quite a lot of merch come out, like Ken mentioned there earlier. And I think because of the amount of merch that came out, they started attracting a slightly younger audience base than they had beforehand, which there in turn made their image switch from being the, you know, the kind of cool and, you know, dangerous band to being, you know, the band that everybody in your whole family can go see, you know. And that was a risk because on one hand, if it worked properly, they would have quadrupled their sales, which I think at one point they obviously did at one point. But in doing that, they hindered a lot of their original audience, people that would probably go away and never come back again, uh, maybe ever. But, uh, you know, it, the tour was interesting, and the time period was interesting, too. Chris Lent's book has a really great bunch of chapters on that whole time period when they were also thinking of doing that whole Kiss World thing, which would have probably totally killed them at that point, because not only did the tour not do so well, because, I mean, you could blame it on whatever, the recession at the time or Maybe just people weren't buying it at the time or they just were starting to lose confidence in them because of the whole merch thing. Who knows why? But there were many reasons that could be pointed at it. But, you know, that that tour 
was was interesting. I mean, that book really put a interesting light on it. I mean, they were they were asked to maybe do a B show and you know do an A and a B show to kind of you know help make some more money on the tour, which obviously shows that it wasn't doing as good as you know they wanted people to believe. Obviously, but you know the costumes I thought were rather outlandish there, but uh, you know I think it was just them just trying to you know, move forward a bit. I mean, I kind of thought that the whole Aces guitar there for New York Groove was kind of neat with the flashing lights and that. Mm-hmm. So some of the things were some interesting improvements. I mean, the Gene Flying Rig was introduced during this tour and has stayed with them ever since then. So there's another innovation that happened then that stuck with the band, right? So it wasn't all bad, but, you know, I don't know what they were thinking with some of those costumes. I mean, it just looked like Gene's costume was made out of, like, soldering iron, that whole thing on his <laughs> yeah, chest there. Right. It looked horrendous, and the boots, they weren't even dragon boots. They were just like, I don't know, these teeth just sticking out of his feet there all of a sudden. It was really odd-looking. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it was it was just really strange, that whole costume period that they had. I mean, it was really Vegas on steroids almost, you know? Icecapades is one of the yes. phrases that yeah, I've seen. And, right. and, and you brought up Chris Lent's book, and... Kiss and Sell, I mean, that's just an incredible... Re- I Great mean, book. it really is uh, the top of the Kiss books, you know, because of the details that he gives you about this tour. I, I mean, they're trying to do multiple stands in cities as another cost-cutting. They they knew they had the kind of the limitations. But one thing you said, Mark, is that they were safe. Mm-hmm. Would it be fair to argue that they'd been safe since 1976, really, when they'd done Destroyer, that that had been a totally safe album it had changed them dynamically completely from the dangerous rock and roll ken you look like you're about to jump on me on that one yeah i don't think so that's they weren't being safe i mean the, the music was a little different and they're more of a concept type album but i don't think that's being i i think that was a risky thing for them to do is to do the destroyer album um quite honestly and uh, really what it is is the, what happened after Destroyer or in the contract, I guess when they redid their contract, they had to do the solo albums that was put in there to do a certain amount of albums. I think that contract is what, you know, blew a lot of what, you know, came after um, having to do those solo albums and, and doing them. Uh, I think if the, they didn't have that in their contract to do the solo albums and they didn't do the solo albums, uh, Dynasty, you wouldn't have seen a Dynasty unmasked or the Elder, in my opinion. I think you would have had a harder rocking album coming after Alive too, um, and after you know Love Gun. So I think that contract is part of the problem of why they went and changed their uh, their at least the sound. Now maybe the merchandising and things would have still happened the same way. Um, <laughs> I, maybe even the costumes, but I think the the music would have been would have been uh, you know still more on the harder rock side. Yeah, and that contract, it, it, you know, with doing the Gene Ace, Peter and Paul, or Paul and Peter, but whatever it is, um, it was about money because they got yeah. four times the advances off that with it written in. So it was kind of a given that when they wrote that in, it was like, well, here is easy money. And I, I kind of say in the book and, you know, whenever I talk about it, that 
Glickman Marx and the whole KISS business became so money-hungry that the amount of advances that they could squeeze out of Casablanca was whether it was for the advertising budget that was going to go to Glickman, um, whether it was the money that was going to go to Allcoin. It was just such a massive amount of monies that they were able to hit the label for that it was like just too easy so yeah that that's the part that really starts changing the band because then you get them back together in 79 and peter is kind of the elephant in the room now isn't he because yeah. he, he doesn't even play on the album but can can anyone actually tell does anyone actually say well, well that's not peter because i i don't have the musical ear for that well i, I did, mean i did not know I, I think it's easy to, for for me, it's kind of easy to pick it up now. <clears throat> when back when I first started getting into Kiss, there was no way in hell that I would have known that because, <clears throat> number one, at the, when I started getting into Kiss, I was about 12, 11, 12, so I hadn't even started playing guitar at that point, so there's no way I would have picked up on stuff like that. It's only after you've been doing music and you know doing production and stuff like that and have years and years and years of doing it do you start picking up on these kinds of things or even becoming aware of things like that right because i'd only become aware of like ghost sessions and stuff like that like you know 10 years ago or whatever like when i was in a studio people started talking to me about that i had no clue what they were talking about and hence you learn about it and you learn about stuff like that but i would have never have known that at that point right but i mean it's I think the whole point that you brought up about the Destroyers thing, I have to agree with Ken, actually. I think that that was a major risk that they took doing that because up to that point, they had done nothing but straight-ahead rock. People were claiming to like it, and when you know a live came, they showed how much they truly loved that whole music, especially in a live capacity. And then their own reaction kind of shows what they thought of it themselves. I mean, they went quickly back in and did rock and roll over and went completely back to what they did before because they were scared of the reaction to it. I mean, you know, them alone, they were afraid of it, right? But, you know, nowadays when you when you go to see a show, you know, it's funny how much of that record they actually play live. They played probably almost most of that record in a live sense for most of the time. So it's, it's interesting how... Uh, something like that can change. I mean, with time, things change in people's eyes sometimes, right? A record that you may not have liked 10 years ago, you listen to it again sometime, and then all of a sudden it grows on you, right? So do fans have a problem with this album or this era because of the kids or because of the image? Because it's not really the music, is it? No. Alex? Um, yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, you've heard stuff where people mention the kids. Um, I think some of it is a lot of the music. Um, I can see that I've got friends that are huge Taylor Swift fans, and some of them love like the new stuff that comes out, and some of them it's like, oh, it doesn't sound like the old stuff, and they don't like it. And I think you can see that with any other band that uh, people listen to. You can look at like the '80s band Y&T, and you know they had like the heavy stuff of Black Tiger, Mean Streak, and Rock We Trust, and then you get down for the count, which is you know full of keyboards and synths, and people are like, mm, I don't like this, and so. I didn't say, I think it was a combination of everything. Um, you know, kind of doing some, you know, studies, because I love the 70s, 80s music era. You know, the 80s was this kind of huge thing coming about and stuff, too. 
Um, you know, the end of 79, you had the end of disco and so forth. And I think that did play a huge role um, with um, some of the views, with how people looked at Kiss at that time, because there's no doubt that Dynasty was a very had a very pop influence to it. Um, with the music, you know, rock disco, as Ace calls it in, in that uh, that interview uh, for Veronica's yeah. Countdown, what do you want to call it? Uh, there was definitely a pop influence, and of course, she had the big thing where they burn all the disco records, and then he saw the decline of disco. And I think um, because of the bright colors and stuff of the outfits, you know, and that whole demise of disco, I think it did play a factor with it. Um, maybe not as huge as one might think, but it definitely did play a role in it. Sorry, that was long-winded. <laughs> that was a hell. That was yeah. a hell of a monologue, but very, you know, very concise. So, you know, does Vinnie Poncia, or Poncia, however you want to say it? I mean, he comes in, but yet, you know, I find the sound of the album pretty soft. You know, it, it's not exactly very dynamic in terms of being aggressive. It doesn't sound like Rock and Roll Over. It sounds more like Love Gun to me. And Love Gun's a pretty sonically neutered album. Uh, that's my one big criticism about Love Gun, is that it is not aggressive. There's no roughness to it. It's very polished. So that, that's the best way I can describe and it. It's, and it's it's weird in a way, at least for me. I mean, obviously you had Peter's and Jane's solo albums that were a little bit different. But you look at Ace and Paul's, except for Hold Me, Touch Me, that Paul did on his <laughs> the piano. But you look at all the other tracks on Paul's album, and you look at Ace's solo album, and there was there was so much crunch to it. And you kind of go, like, where did it go? I mean, obviously, you still got some strong, you know, stuff with Ace's Dynasty material. But at the same time, it's like, where did the, where did the, the, the uh, aggression go? True. Yeah. And, it, you know, it bringing in Vinny to, to you know... Uh, cater to you know every peter chris uh, at uh on this you know is part of the problem maybe if they would have went back to eddie kramer they would have had that and they probably would have had more of maybe sounding like ace's album if anything yeah that's you know, that's the part that's like so disappointing that dynasty doesn't really represent the best of any of the solo albums being brought back yeah. to to the kiss world does it mark you uh, i jumped in on you there <laughs> That's okay. I was just going to say, the one thing I noticed about Dynasty, and I think I mentioned this once before, is that I don't know what it is, and if I'm the only one who thinks this, but every time I listen to Dynasty, and it's probably one of the records I actually surprisingly pull out more than some of the others, is that I've always found that when I listen to it, it reminds me of New York City. And what I'm trying, I'll try to explain that. It's just whenever I hear that record, I just, I just can envision downtown New York for some reason. And there's a few records that do that to me as well. Like there's a few Zappa records that when I listen to, it reminds me of New York. And there's like, a, like a, like that Asia record from uh, Steely Dan. Whenever I hear that, there's songs in that record that remind me of New York City. There's something about the way they produced the songs on their, the way they, the way they use compression and stuff like that. That's tagged along all those records I just mentioned that has a very downtown New York City sound to it. I mean, it's, I know it might be difficult to kind of translate what I'm hearing in it, but it's there's something about it that's always made me just think of New York. Like, I just see Statue of Liberty. I just, I don't know what it is about that record that just makes me hear, hear and see. When I see that, like, when I hear, I see those things, right? And I, I've never had a problem with that production. I thought that Unmasked was a little bit more on... 
that bad side of the whole poppy side. But, um, you know, I, I guess it's just also you got to keep in mind that Vinnie Poncia, that's his style of production and that's his style of, you know, work that he would normally does, I, I'm thinking, in terms of making audio, right? So, I mean, if you, they would have had somebody else do it, like if Eddie Kramer would have did that record with them or if anybody else would have did it with them, I'm sure there would have been a slightly different tona- tonality to it, right? But I just think it has to do with Vinnie's production sense and, you know, I, I just think that also them recording it in New York had a bit of an influence to it that way too. I just like dirty living to me just sounds like a theme for like New York cabbies or something. Like just I can just envision that, you know. I totally agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, no. and I, I totally get that, Mark. I have the same. Uh, if you guys get the chance, check out the song "Street Player" by Chicago, and you, you know you can vision like that New York City scene. That's life and everything. So I totally get that. Yeah. No, that, that's that's a, that's a great take on it, but could, I I don't think Eddie Kramer could make that album sound any different. Yeah, again, it just sounds like it just sounds like a, a redo of '77 sonically. Yeah, if you think about yeah. it, they, you know they wrote the songs a certain way. It's those songs were written a certain way, and I don't think they were changed so that much by Vinny uh, Vinny Pontia's. Uh, input um i think the basic bones of those songs are still going to be pretty much the same but i mean um, but, you could but you could get kind of i guess the layers that were added i mean if you if you have a guess you know youtube the dirty living demo um yeah and you get, and you know i mean it's still nothing you know it's still poppy as it is but it definitely had a little bit more crunchy sound to it compared to the finished product that did wind up on dynasty oh, yeah God, dirty living was was a a song that they had written back in like around seventy two or something, I believe. Completely, with Pendridge, right? Yeah. So I love yeah. that demo, and that that's that's off my the reel I had, and <laughs> you just gave me a happy moment, you know, recalling listening to the playback of that after we'd had that reel restored, respliced, everything cleaned, and playing it in the studio on studio equipment, unbelievable. I and then. It's just such a different character to the song. I love Peter's original take on that. Um, and the stuff that he brought in to Dynasty has always been a particular favorite for my, for my taste. You know, out of control. Rumble's crap, but, you know, it, it, you know, it just needs a little bit of help from another co-writer to get it there. Because it's got a, you know, a vibe that's not that much different from um, Dirty Living. So... And there, then what's the last one? There's nothing better or something like that. So, you know, out yeah, of control. Another thing, quick thing about this era too is, is you know, I think their hunger was gone. You know, they they were really hungry. You know, when they first started off, and but now that they've made it, that that hunger is gone, and you could see it in their in their writing. I mean, they, they weren't da- that, that dangerous even writing. Um, their theme of music and what they wrote about uh, was toned down quite a bit you know they kind of kind of went on I guess they were just coasting at this point I think yeah there's a big oh. there's a big change when you look at like a song like charisma mm-hmm. and then compare it to do you love me you know they're, they're kind of similar in terms of where the song's kind of pointing but you're you're like getting a little bit more arrogant 
and egocentric yeah. when you get into charisma that you're now uh, everyone else are the little people. I mean, but how do you stay hungry when the checks start running in? You know, yeah. you start getting these big checks finally. Yeah, everyone says yes to you. You've, you've got your faces on dolls. You've, you know, you're on your way to having 300,000 licensees or whatever, you know. Right. How, yeah, how, do mean, you, how do you stay hungry? How do you stay angry? Angry rock stars when you're driving a Porsche or you've got an apartment, you know, in, an, in a swanky part of New York or wherever they were living at this point. Mark? No, I was just going to say, I mean, that's exactly the whole point of it. I think that the reason why they weren't hungry is because there was no reason for them to be hungry anymore. They had money coming in before they were, you know... Gene was sleeping sometimes in the loft or this and that, or, you know, they had, didn't have money. They were driving cabs and, you know, life they, they, they thought sucked at that point. But now they have everything they want. They have nice houses. They have, you know, brownstones and, you know, rooftop apartments. And, you know, like like Julian said, I mean, how could you be hungry when you have stuff like that? And, and you're literally not hungry anymore. You can go out and have steak dinners every night if you wanted. You know, there's... You, I think the problem is, whenever I look at bands that have went on and continued after they got to success, they always try to find another motivator for them to continue it. I remember when Pink Floyd hit, hit big with Dark Side of the Moon, they were saying, well, what are we in it for now? You know what I mean? Like, why are we doing this? We've done all the things that we were striving for. Why do we continue? And they had issues with Wish You Were Here because of that, because... You know, they were, everybody was just here, there, and everywhere. And, I mean, I look at bands like Rush, too. Like, when they hit big with moving pictures, what was their motivation now to move forward? And, you know, they always tried. To, I always found it interesting that whenever I read their books that they just tried so many different things. Like, Neil would look into, you know, bike riding, or he would do all these different things that would inspire him to write lyrics and stuff like that, and that kept, them, kept it fresh and kept it moving. And I think maybe Kiss were victim of not doing that keeping themselves stimulated with new things that their fortune could have gave them you know like maybe if paul got into i don't know rock climbing or something that maybe he would have got inspired by the views or you know who knows like just something that would have got their engine flowing that they could have translated to their music you're not going to get very inspired when you're buying antique lamps is, is, <laughs> that, is that what we're saying and pink floyd i mean <laughs> look at them by the time they're recording the wall they're basically coming to the studio with attache cases and working nine to five like freaking bankers. So, yeah. th but obviously that's a that's a different kind of a case. Uh, no pun intended there. But um, <laughs> you know that it had become a business and they were so dysfunctional by the time they're doing that album anyway that it, it doesn't really matter. Kiss, I mean, isn't it a little bit cliched where they went? You know, you've got the two guys who go off the wall, um, and then you've got one who goes Hollywood. And one who goes arty, mm -hmm. Alex. Alex, you had a comment that you were you were trying to get in with a minute ago. Oh, I can't even remember what it was now. It must not have been that good. <laughs> no, but I, I agree. You know, it's it's interesting to see. I guess what the mindset was for the members too, and obviously with with what they were writing about, and it, and it truly is. You know, you write what you're living and what you know, and and you definitely see the changes that were coming in it. I think even like on Unmasked, you see that with uh, Gene's song "Naked City" on Unmasked and stuff. You know, you, you go from the you know after the early albums being you know sex and alcohol and rock and roll, and then you know you kind of move up a little more um, with more of the intimate side of, of things with with some of the guys, and then 
Um, and then you get like Unmastered, you got, you know, Ace with Torpedo Girl, which is just a weird song. It's got a cool bass it. riff. I love it. It's it's got a great bass riff. I still remember when I saw Ace in two. I still remember when I saw Ace in two thousand eight, and Anthony Esposito started playing that 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 riff, and I was like, "No freaking way are they doing you know this song?" So it was way cool, but <laughs> still, it was, it was a different song to say the least. Yeah, I mean, Mark, as a musician, as a someone who's worked as a musician, do you have to be suffering to to write good, angry? Or edgy music, you know. Let's not necessarily say angry, but edgy, something with a, a message. Do you have to be, or if you're so content, is it going to be country music? Well, honestly, and you know, I'm going to come clean with a few things by me talking about this on my end. But I think that certain things motivate certain songwriting. Like when I first started some of my bands, like that I was in, it was just all about hunger and desperation to want to get out and start playing and to start touring and to get into the whole scene of the music thing. So to be inspired and was really easy. Once we started getting out there and doing things and, you know, started doing tours of Canada and this and that and things like that, then, you know, it's not like, you know, we ever hit some huge big time, but it's, you start having different things now starting to creep in and to motivate you, right? Or sometimes things that deter you from doing it, like, I found sometimes at one point in our band's career, we started getting heavy into drinking a bit, right? Now, when we drank some of, sometimes, we found that some of the songs that we wrote were pretty good, and sometimes they were pretty terrible. And to be honest, there was a small period, small little period of my life, where that also happened with narcotics, unfortunately, for me too. Now... I'm not going to say that, you know, I encourage people to do that, but I re- even remember Steven Tyler saying that he thought some of the best songs he ever wrote in his life was while he was high. And I have to say that there was been a few songs that I've written in my life that I thought I wrote that were awesome and because of, the, of that situation that I was in. But I, I have to also say that I do, because I've went through this and I've been clean and I don't drink, I don't do anything anymore. I haven't done it for like 10 years now. But I, because of that, though, and having gone through it, I can say that it does motivate you in certain ways because you're because of the change of mindset. You can think of different things and different ideas, and sometimes you come up with an idea that you never would have thought that you would have came up with, not in that situation. And, I mean, I think that's obvious with lots of those bands, too. I mean, Floyd have, have experimented and done stuff. The Beatles have done that. You know, Rush, for a long time, they're all about pot smoking and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it's, you know, I'm not encouraging it or, uh, like, advertising it, but I understand because I've been in that path, too, to see what it does. And, you know, that's the one thing I thought it was always interesting about Kiss, for example, is that, you know, those guys had their issues as well, you know. And it seemed like with Ace, sometimes it's... It almost seemed like it maybe might have helped him. He wrote some great songs, you know, Rocket Ride and stuff like that. But you know, with Peter, it always seemed like there was something odd going on with his songwriting. Now, whether that had anything to do with, you know, his intake or not, only he could truthfully tell us that. But, you know, I I always thought it was, you know, strange, that dynamic, you know. Well, I said we weren't going to talk about The Elder. But unfortunately, when we're talking about substances, you get destroyer where bob ezrin is known to be using at that time and it has a positive influence on the 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 creativity or at least uh, shall we 
you know, play devil's advocate and say it doesn't have a negative impact on the creativity. Mm -hmm. And you have Peter Chris who's using it and it's fueling an incredible energy that he's bringing into his drum work. And, you know, he's maybe coping with the stress of boot camp in, in a way. And then you get, you fast forward to 1981 and he's using and it's having a delusional effect maybe um, a less the, than positive one so you know th without getting into the psychology of you know use and all of uh, all of the stuff that goes with that that are way out of my realm of expertise um you know there are differences as to how a substance could have a benefit and could have a, a, a negative reaction but you know by by this time you know when we're talking about dynasty it seems that drug abuse has taken its toll on the creativity that you know they're not angry they're not motivated they're they're not really singing about much it's pretty pretty standard fare the material on dynasty i find yeah, they they seem tired. It almost seems like they're doing it at that point just to keep going. Almost like at the like Elvis's end of his career, like he was almost doing it just to keep you know being able to get out of bed almost you know. And that's 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 the bad part of it. That is the bad part of that whole situation. Is that once it gets to that point, then you know you're at the end of the rope there. You know, and I mean, I and I reading again. I keep pref you know bringing up Chris Lent's book. But again, he he really talks about that a lot as a lot a lot as well in that like all the parties that they had those crazy parties where the roadies had to go in and clean up the the hotel rooms before you know they left because they had all kinds of vials everywhere and bottles smashed every I mean they were doing it at that point just to keep themselves afloat you know I think that they were just not you know there wasn't even a question about motivation anymore it just is a matter of keeping going it almost. Like, yeah. Yeah. They. They. You know. Peter and Ace perhaps needed to use in order to function. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the next. And and going in from Dynasty to Unmasked, you have them now. I think it's the their contract is bought out or whatever. There's pressure. And and, and you know this last album. You know, actually, it, it sold well, right? It did pretty. Yeah. Pretty well. <laughs> Uh, Dynasty. So now, on mass, their polygram is bought over whatever fifty percent of uh, Casablanca. They, they so, buy, buy on mass. They own it all. They bought Bogart out completely. It's seventy-seven yeah. that they buy right. in. So they so own they, it, and they've renegotiated with Kiss, who are their banner, you know, band basically, because everyone else is jumping ship from Polygram. Yeah. So I think their uh, Polygram is kind of pushing them into keeping with that trend since the last album actually did pretty well it's like well hey let's keep Vinny on and and keep the same as try to write more hit songs you know yeah, and did I, it with, I was so then they come out with unmasked and it's even more watered down than dynasty yeah i mean you brought up a great point because you know i was made for loving you when number one in a few spots from what i remember reading yeah, yeah. and i mean you know record labels love that you know as soon as they see you know hey it did well and it's a gold single and this and that you know we, we want more of that you know and you know and they had and they had every right i guess in their eyes to push them to do that because they had just finished giving them one of the biggest contracts at that point if i'm not mistaken again i'm reading it from chris's book there you know they got like a million dollar advance like for like, I think they had got two million a, a record at that point. They were getting advanced, but I mean that's like a huge, you know, 
amount of money to get back at yeah. that time, you know, and, you know, for them to turn around and say, listen, I, we want you guys to write some hit singles here. I mean, that, that's their reasoning for it. We're giving you all this cash and we're giving you all this cash because Dynasty, in their eyes, did so well, right? So, Well, well not co- not exactly. They're giving them money because of the key man clause. They, um, oh, because Bogart left, right? Because Bogart left, uh, Diana, um, not Diana, excuse me, uh, Donna Summer mm-hmm. sued Casablanca, or more precisely, her management, which was Joyce, and she left the label to go to Geffen. And mm-hmm. there were very few acts on Casablanca because they released so much shit. They were just shoveling records out the, you know, the, the back door in <laughs> some senses. You know, look at the catalog. You know, there's a lot of stuff on there that is just, you know, has not, you know, aged well, isn't that good, mm-hmm. that they were doing what we often accuse Gene of doing, the shotgun effect of, you know, just fire the gun and see what sticks to the wall. Um, yeah. So it was kind of that methodology. And I'm going to put a call out right now. You know, anyone out there who has a copy of the 1980 contract, I would love to see that. I could really use that. I've got their 73, 75, 76, 77 ones. Um you know, I would love to see what is precisely in there. But because Neil goes and they've got the key man that allows them, once he's out of the picture and bought out, they can go. You know, the new overlords are desperate to keep acts. You know, they're pruning back the roster tremendously, getting rid of all those crap acts that haven't made it. They've lost, you know, their biggest seller. Parliament's run its course by then, and they've got Kiss. Yeah. Well, no, but I, I understand. I, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, Village People left the following. They finished with Can't Stop in 80. Um, they did a movie and a soundtrack, but then they left the, and went to RCA Records. And then they did the whole little Renaissance debacle. Yeah, but they were distributed still by Casablanca in Japan. No. Sorry, Japan. sorry. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know that. I don't know anything about the Village People. Sorry. How do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no, Mark. I, no, I was going to say, like, I mean, that that's a very good point to bring up. But I've, I'd venture to say now. Correct me if I'm wrong, Julian. That if Kiss, if Dynasty hadn't sold well at all, and if I Was Made for Loving You wasn't as good a single as it was, would they have went so hard after Kiss? Even with the key man thing, would they, you know, would they have just said, okay, well, great, see ya? Like, if they didn't do so hot, then they know? wouldn't. They wouldn't have had anything left on the label with any viability. You know, Captain yeah, and Tennille, Captain and Tennille, <laughs> come on. Um, come you know, on. You know, Leroy Gomez, you know, Santa Esmeralda, you know, Angel. I mean, Angel Angel, Angel was cooked by that point. You know, they, they never were going to amount to a thing. They hadn't broken anywhere. Um, you know, yeah, they had some great albums and some good music. Yeah. But, you know, Casablanca didn't have anyone else they could fall back on to say yeah kiss get bent you know your album you know was okay but it was a success and it was a perfect album internationally for the band at that time it was it that successful in america well it sold a million copies of um the single so mm-hmm. you know their second gold single was it successful we've heard all sorts of numbers thrown out that it's double platinum triple platinum who the hell knows at this point no one's gonna want that audit to happen so <laughs> So it's kind of they're stuck with Kiss, and they're going to make the most of it. So going back to what you said, do the same thing over again, except Kiss has become a little bit more complacent, 
a little bit mm-hmm. more comfortable. Paul's been playing his acoustic guitar a lot, being lonely in his apartment, and you end up with shit like Shandy, which is, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a very nice pop tune. It's, you know, when you analyze it on a technical basis, it's absolutely wonderful. But from Kiss, it's no Beth. So un- yeah. Unmasked, is, is, is that a kick in the nuts of the Kiss fans? Or were there any, not that many left at that point? Maybe into the, to the like I said, the original fans that well, started to... maybe with the first few albums and so on. But uh, did you buy this I mean, album? New? It wasn't. It wasn't. Hey, it wasn't a kick in the nuts for me. Um, I I bought it as soon as I saw it. Now the funny about this one, I I always would wait. You know, know the release dates of albums, and but for, for some reason, Unmasked, I didn't even know it was out until. I saw it. I, I go to record store a lot, and I, I just go by the Kiss section of albums, and I'd always look, you know. And all of a sudden, I said, "Oh, wait a minute, what is this?" And I picked up Unmasked. I, I said, "I didn't even know that was out." So I don't know if the the promotion of Unmasked was really lacking as compared to Dynasty. I knew Dynasty was coming out because I I was there the day it. They came out. I went to the record store and pulled it out of the darn box before it was even on the shelf. So, you know, Unmasked was different for me. It's like I didn't even know it was out. Maybe you weren't but buying enough I copies of Sixteen magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bought it and <laughs> <laughs> I bought it and you know I was fine with it. And again, these are even though the the music is toned down on these couple albums, uh, I still. I still love them in their own way. They're it's, they're good in their own way. You, you know, Kiss has changed their you know shifted gears throughout their career, and uh, but I still love those albums. I'll still listen to them. It's you know I'm just saying, yeah. It I love the when they're a little bit harder rocking, but I still like these these ones too. I remember when I first got this album, and it was one of the last ones. It and Dynasty, for some reason, I, I seem to recall where it came pretty late in my discovery into the back catalog. And when I put it on the first time, I'm, I still get it today. I get a like a little shiver when I, Is That You comes on because it's such an optimistic opening to an album. You know, it's a real yeah. balls-to-the-wall rock and roll song. And then you go through the album and what makes the world go round. Um, tomorrow. Tomorrow, I actually like more than Shandy. You know, it's a really, really well-crafted song. I mean, Alex, take over. You know, run through your tracks. (laughs) Well, I remember, um, I think I mentioned for my dad was in the Navy overseas. And um, so he he was in the Philippines, so he had some, like, bootleg tapes. And I remember he had this he had this bootleg tape where it started with like crazy nights and and turn on the night then it goes into I was made for loving you, but I remember it had Christine sixteen and tomorrow right after each you know back to back, and so I thought they were from like the same like and I knew it wasn't like seventy it felt like eighty so I thought it was like you know from the same stuff so I was blown away when I realized that Christine sixteen came out in nineteen seventy seven and I was like okay. Um, but no, I, I remember picking up, uh, going to Best Buy in Maryland and picking up Unmasked. And um, I remember I felt, I, I really did enjoy, um, I like Talk To Me. Talk To Me was one that was I really enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, that song, Is That You? Um, 
Except I don't like the whole little intro, the little that little wow part. That part always kind of like you know, I wasn't keen with it. Um, but I didn't mind the tracks, and I definitely love y'all that I won. And I remember when I found like they did it live, and uh, they kissed the life of Everberg. And I remember I was like on a quest to find a recording of it live because I thought that was such a great song. I will say I love the box set version, uh, the the acoustic, um, more softer, uh, mellow uh, version of the song, but. They're definitely all great tracks. Um, She's So European was, I don't know, it was high school. I thought it was kind of like a weird, interesting song and stuff, you know. Maybe because growing up in D.C., we had we would have a lot of European exchange students come to my school. And so, I don't know, just kind of, I never, like, hated the song. It was just, it was different. It was weird. But, that That is just, that song, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned it, but it's just so wrong. It's someone <laughs> trying to be everything that they're not. It's pretentious. And... The the lyrics are everything that's wrong. Well, with... I gotta give you musically, it's great. Yeah, I give it funny not to like so about being a LDS Mormon and stuff. And I remember like I was like fourteen when I got it. And I remember the line she makes love on a brass bed. And I remember thinking like, should I be listening to this song? Am I going to go to hell? Sinner. <laughs> <laughs> so I take it yeah. you you were cool with the song. Yeah, it was cool. I just, okay, yeah, that's, cool. that's, just, that's a relief. Just, it just made me chuckle, though. Like, I remember, like, the first time, you know, like, 14 when I was doing it and stuff, you know, my eyes were opening up to the world and stuff of high school and seeing things you never saw because in middle school you were transitioning and then, like, whoa, high school and she makes love on a brass band and being old, yes, it just, everything hit the fan. Another quick, yeah, another quick thing about Mass is uh, I remember when we were listening to it, I had bought it, and my friend, who was also a Kiss fan, Pretty big. He knew it, he knew it wasn't Peter Chris playing. He said that's not Peter playing. Where I I didn't know. I said, heck, I know. I said, well, I know but he knew he knew he he wasn't playing on that album. So you, you know what though? The, there's one differently than Dynasty on this record. They didn't hide it as much. Like on Dynasty, no. I think they not like they purposefully hid it, but his drumming, Anton's drumming was more on Peter's sort of style side. This record, like Unmasked, was was absolutely not. I mean the one son that's the dead giveaway that he's that Peter Chris is not playing is is a torpedo girl. Like that drum beat in oh, there yeah. that he does in there is like Peter Chris would never play a drum beat like that. You know? But I mean this record is funny for me personally because it was the last KISS record I bought. And every time I saw this record in the record store I always kind of looked at it, and it was, it was, a, and I'll admit it, it was one of those situations where I looked at the front cover and I was like, oh, I don't know, what is this? Like, the, the album cover threw me off, and I didn't buy it for a long time. And I finally got it and I listened to it, and I just thought, you know, it was okay. It, it wasn't anything spectacular. But again, I got that record a long time ago. What actually made me go out and get it was when I started playing with this friend of mine in one of my bands. He had the poster that came inside with the vinyl, that one that comes with it on his wall. He had it framed, and I was looking at it. I go, wow, that's a pretty cool poster. He goes, yeah, it comes with Unmasked. And he's like, it was not a not a good record, but the poster's cool. So I finally kind of went out and got the post, like got the record so I can get the poster and stuff like that. And I listened to it and I was like, you know, it's not, it's not bad. I mean, there was, there's obviously the, the songs that I really like on here. I really like, like talk to me, I think is one of Ace's better songs that he's written. I really love talk to me. Naked city is probably one of Gene's better songs he's written. 
you know, Is That You is one of the better kick-ass opening songs Kisses done, which is, you know, surprising. And honestly, I think I actually like Tomorrow. I think that's a great song. I mean, the song before, yeah. what makes the world go around is kind of like, eh, that I could do without. But um, what's what's on here that's good is really good, I think. But again, I think it's a victim of Vinnie Poncia's sterilization of his production, you know? It, it doesn't, and this record doesn't come across to me nearly as New York City-ish as Dynasty did for some reason. Something about this record seems a little bit more, you know, it almost seemed like they weren't trying as hard, if they were trying hard at all on Dynasty, I'm not sure, but they didn't try it as hard as what they were doing on that last record with this one. Yeah, I think they show a lot more diversity on this album, so I think they are trying from that perspective. I think Vinny's got the hooks in more. I mean, look at all the credits that he gets. You know, you get more keyboards as well, which are not just him. Mm -hmm. But it's like they're throwing everything at this contract to prove to the overlords that, you know, yeah, we're viable. We're worth, you know, what you've just renegotiated with us. So we're going to give you the tender ballad. We're going to give you the power ballad. We're going to, yeah. you know, give you the well, rocker. The, you know, it's, it's, it becomes a little bit formulaic at that point. But this, I mean, for the songwriting, I agree with you. They definitely try. I'm talking about more like from the production. Because I think the production is a bit more, a bit more clear on Dynasty. It's a bit more... I don't know. I like it better than Unmasked. I think the songwriting is better. I agree that Vinnie Poncia probably had more involvement in the songwriting and the structure of the songs. But I think that maybe because of that, he didn't focus as much on the production of it, in my opinion. I, you know, you don't have to agree with me at all on that, but that's what I just think. No, production-wise, Dynasty is definitely the better of the two albums that yeah. he worked on. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's going to put unmasked up for any award i mean it's muddy in parts you know it's it's not been polished it's been i don't know watered down in in some ways uh, i'm asking a question what do you guys think about the the song choices they chose for like the dynasty tour from dynasty and and unmasked because i was disappointed they never did sure know something live especially with doing a promo video mm. for it yeah and they yeah. they released that as a single so <laughs> Uh, yeah, why did they not play it? I, I guess it's the same reason they don't play some other singles that kind of didn't, you know, hit the mark. You know, Dynasty I get because they had to put in some of the solo stuff. And, mm, yeah. you know, what's the solo stuff that survives? I mean, New York Groove. Uh, Move on. Well, barely. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it, you know, everything except New York Groove gets dropped, ultimately. That's the only song that had any longevity attached to it what else do they they play they have they've got to play the million selling single i was made for loving you so th there was a lot of stuff i would have loved to have heard um on bootlegs since i obviously wasn't a fan back then yeah and they and they didn't tour here i mean <laughs> at least for you know unmasked i was hoping that they were gonna tour um but you know that never happened i mean they only played that one show uh in introducing eric carr at the ritz or whatever right uh, palladium. palladium, palladium. I mean, sorry, that's the other one. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I, then I saw Eric Carr um, when he was introduced on that show on Sunday morning. So um, yeah, I was hoping, man, they were going to tour here, but I guess it was just really. I think Australia that's enough. 
That's a really great point, though, because, I mean, there again is the influence of the new record label, right? Because, I mean, Phonogram being based in the, you know, overseas in Europe, they probably wanted to bring Kiss over and really start pushing them over on this side. Because I think up until that point, they had been strictly a North American touring band. I mean, they went, they went over once, I think, during Destroyer, right? And then they only went to Japan other than that, but they never really did any solid touring in Europe, so they figured that this is a brand new virgin market for them to go in and start playing stuff, and, you know, they had Dynasty, which did well over in Europe, right, so they were probably trying to push them over there, and that's why they probably didn't come back to North America till who knows, like, till Creatures, right? Yeah, because North America didn't want them at that point, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, 73, 74 to, you know, 80, Kiss's idea of touring internationally was essentially going to Canada. <laughs> you know, yeah, they went to Japan and did, what, 10 shows in, you know, two separate tours. So they were not an international band at that point. They'd gone to Europe, and that was, 76 is anything but impressive. You know, 1980, they put a much bigger effort. I mean, look at the number of markets that they, they toured in Germany in particular. I mean, they were up and down the country in England. You know, they were hitting, mm -hmm. you know, every rinky-dink place in France, so they really made a solid and concerted effort to shift their popularity internationally because they knew they were dead in America. So you've got nothing left at home. You're looking next door. Well, that's across the pond. So Alex has disappeared. He went to check on his, went to check on his village people connect, uh, collection. Yeah, I was thinking it was because he listened to She's So European. <laughs> He's... <laughs> He's, he he just got the answer that is is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. <laughs> All right, so let, so let's get back to where I think we were, and mm -hmm. and that is kind of we're in Europe now because mm -hmm. you've you've got no life left in America. You're commercially dead, so you're looking for new markets. And Australia was probably the most appealing of the markets. Um, Dynasty had been you know a successful album there so they 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 basically took the show on the road because they had nowhere else to go what was what are your thoughts on that mark because i can't think of anything right now well i mean it's actually interesting that australia took to kiss so hugely at that point i mean it made me wonder about a couple of things i mean up, up until that point and maybe you have more insight on this julian than I do, but was was the Kiss catalog even released in Australia before Unmasked, or was that like the first mm -hmm. record that? No, yeah? no. Australia was the earliest adopter of the catalog with Astor Records, had uh, released, I believe, Hotter Than Hell was their first oh. um, domestically released album. They had also released singles like Strutter, is the first yeah. single out there. So well, they, they just, were they were well keyed in on on the band though it didn't have the popularity quite as elsewhere but it didn't have yeah. the negative connotations like the british you know poo-pooed the band you know as some you know americans dressed up looking like idiots yeah um, well, it... shandy was a huge hit there um, massive this, massive hit but right? you know the you know australia really seemed to lap up the hype um, they were like the Beatles. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, not like the Beatles because the Beatles, in a way, you know, the the Beatles have <laughs> when they went to Australia had three hundred thousand show up to greet them, and Kiss had three thousand. 
if that, <laughs> you know, at, at Sydney. So okay. <laughs> well, I mean, what I was trying yeah. to get at with that whole question basically was just a. Uh, if that if that wasn't their first record there, then why did that one actually hit? I'm just wondering why Unmasked of all records went so gigantic there. I mean, the the reaction that Australia had to them at that point there was like unbelievable. It's like why didn't that happen with Love Gun or why didn't that happen with Rock and Roll Over? You know, or Destroyer even. You know, like it just seemed like that's such an odd record. One word, marketing. Ah, okay. A concerted effort to market outside of the U.S. And if you look at the press in Australia during the unmasked period, they were being fed a line. They they would have had you believe that Kiss is the greatest thing, that they were number one in America. And, and most people didn't have access to the information like we do today. It's at our fingertips that we can fact check or, you know, look up something when we're talking about it while we're doing a show. In Australia, there were, you know, press reports. Uh, they're coming. They're coming. Kiss. Bigger than life. Yeah, they're coming. And, I mean, this is in June when it's in, the tour is announced. So it was manufactured. And I, I, I said in something that I wrote, uh, oh, yeah, something that I'm writing right now, uh, Malcolm McLaren would have been absolutely flabbergasted and proud of the hype job that was sold the Australians in the 1980 tour. Because if you think about it, no one actually made any money out of that tour. The, the promoter lost money. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, Paul's flying models across the Tasman Sea. I mean, C.K. Lent, again, read his book. Mm. Um you know, has some great stories about that. It's all manufactured. It's it's not massive. You you get all these stories in the press after the tour. These poor Australian licensees who, you know, made fifty thousand coins and only sold three thousand. Or you know, <laughs> those numbers are not correct, but it you know the the effects the same. That you know they went bankrupt because they bet everything on the hype, but it didn't yeah. exist. Nor did it exist in Europe because, again, like 1976, they're not playing gigantic venues. They're not selling out. They're doing no. ad they're doing adequately. Yeah, it, it, it was funny because again in that book, I, that's one thing that you brought up that was very interesting. Is like they mentioned in the book that the promoter asked them what did they want at the at their concerts when they were in Australia, and they said, "We you know we want a swimming pool at all, all the gigs." Yeah. You know, and the guy provided the swimming pool for them. So I'm no wonder this guy didn't make any money. I mean, he had to do such lofty things just to appease this band. You know, there was it. no money. Either. There was no any. Yeah, they said that they never used it at all, yeah, right? right? So, and uh, you know, that just goes to show the abuse of power at that point. I mean, come on, man! Yeah. Instead of wasting it on a pool, you could have, you know, maybe, you know, maybe got paid a bit more extra because of it. But whatever. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. that was just them flexing their. You know their ego. I think by ever yeah. requesting that. What what's a band supposed to do? You know the Van Halen brothers. What was it? Uh, no brown M and M's. Yeah, but that, but that was yes. but that was smart though though that no brown M and M's thing because I mean if you if, I'm sure you must have read the story about why they did that right yeah to yes. see if, see if the promoters are actually reading the right attention and following the contract yeah yeah which is which is brilliant actually because if they didn't do they yeah. didn't follow a small thing like that then why would they follow any of the big legal things that they needed right so but you know it's. I always thought that Australia was kind of interesting because of that, like just uh, the whole reaction to it. And, you know, that was that was something that I always found, you know, 
in the back of my head is I if they had all these other records before unmasking like the most unlikely record that would have put them over. But like you said, the hype machine was probably working at its best. They had a big you know record label pushing them at that point, so they probably had much more in terms of promotion going on for them. And there you go. I mean, and Australia has always been now that place that you can rest assured that if they went there, they have a good attendance still. I think mm-hmm. right. Okay, uh, just just as a fact check, I did look up, you know, what were the top 25 singles in Australia in 1979, just to get an idea of the sort of music that was popular. My Sharona is up there. Uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy, La Freak, uh, Pop Music by M, Heart of Glass, Blondie, Mm -hmm. Kiss, I Was Made for Loving You. So, YMCA, Alex. (laughs) Uh, hot, uh, hot stuff by Don, Donna Summer. Uh, yeah. Video killed the Radio Star great song. Wow, cool. So it, it, you know, Kiss's stuff at that time isn't so far off what is popular in Australia. Mm-hmm. So, I, so you kind of get it from that perspective. Um, you know, I, I hope our Australian brethren aren't aren't offended by what me me saying basically that they were sold a line of hype because it was an event. And living in Australia, I don't think there were a tremendous amount of major international touring acts that were touring down under. And, yeah. your, and your domestic bands like ACDC had left. Yeah. You know, they were elsewhere at that point because after 1976, when they signed with the big international labels, they were less and less involved in Australia. Obviously, they never lost their roots completely. but So it, it's an event. Yeah. And for this generation, it is kind of the generation, the same thing as the Beatles were in whatever year they went to Australia. So it was it 65, I think. Um, yeah. So Kiss in 1980 is a major event. It's just not on the same level. But that doesn't mean that in terms of pop culture, it's any less important. Yeah, because, I mean, that's, you brought up a really good point about that, too, about how at that point... Australia never had many bands go there. I think I think if a memory serves me, maybe maybe Queen went there before them or around that time. But I mean, like you said, there there wasn't it wasn't like they were getting bands all the time going in there to play. So of course, whenever you had a huge act come in there, it was must have been like you know you know pull out the party hats and go crazy kind of thing, you know, because they were, you know, and even now like before before that tour happened. Or I even read about it. I didn't, you know, you never. I never really heard many things about bands going to Australia. Now it seems like they go, and lots of bands want to go to Australia, but that just seems now more of like a financial thing. They have to sort of, you know, make it feasible for them to go there to to play. But everybody seems to always give great reports about playing in Australia. You know what I mean? Whenever you hear a band saying we're going to go tour, they're always saying in the back of their mind that they they're really hoping to go to Australia. You know. I guess, uh, and Julian, you had that deal about the, uh, I know those material about the the, the offered movies uh, or and show, that sort of thing, the Halloween thing, and then there's the ghost thing. And um, I think it was, you know, Kiss was offered these things. Uh, this is obviously after probably Phantom of the Park. Um, and uh, I think it's a good idea that they turned these things down or never did them because I think they would have taken them even even farther down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, F- further uh, down from Phantom, huh? Yes, mm-hmm. I, I just, 
you know, in, in reading some of the stuff about these things, the best part is always going to be them playing, you know, anything, even like a fan of the park. The best part is them playing live on stage. Yeah. Um, you know, if they were going to do any kind of movie back then, they should just done a full movie on stage live. Um, yeah. It would have been the way to go. Which they basically that- did for, uh, for uh, what was it? Uh, HBO. HBO in you Japan, know. right? Yeah, re-editing that and taking out all, sure. the, all the Japanese subtitles and all that. Um, but obviously, th- there was the proposal for Kisteria, you know, the the documentary for. And I didn't give you guys that document with the with the two other treatments that I gave you. Mm-hmm. Um, was looking at filming the Australian tour, like starting with Ayers Rock and an Aborigine or um, uh, forgive me for not being politically correct. I'm not sure how we refer to native Australians um, these days, you know, kind of reacting to the jet landing. So you get a lot of that, that stuff going into that movie proposal for the Australian tour, which we ultimately see many years later. Then you see this, A Kiss for Halloween. This is 1979. Uh, I'll just just read a quick line. Here's the thin storyline. Kiss visits the haunted castle as one of many stops on the tour of England. Kiss becomes aware that the townspeople are upset, frightened. They discover that the ghost of Halloween has decided to return to his original home, the castle. Jesus tits. All right. I yeah. mean, you get, you get, you get Ken, you're a right. Scoo- they did a Scooby Doo movie. Uh, <laughs> fine, but if you're gonna do it, uh, a live action with kids like that, that's not gonna. It's not gonna work. Yeah, the other script yeah. is Behind the Mask of Kiss, which was yeah. a working title, and that seemed to get pretty far. I mean, some of the the letters and stuff, the back and forth on that was that. You know, a coin was at least happy with that idea or happier that it was kind of reaching a, a point where they felt it would be able to go forward. But you know what, though, that's the one that I thoroughly read last night. I, I went and I sat down and I got my little kiss lamp out there and, you know, sat there and I, I read it thoroughly there. And the first thing that came into my head after I read that top to bottom was it reminded me of one of those Hallmark sort of, you know, season season kind of movies that they have, you know, like the two kids, you know, the two little girls, you know, they're, they're dreaming about going to kiss and then they, you know, they're seeing them on TV and all of a sudden they're following the band and they go through this adventure and then all of a sudden they wake up and realize it's all a big dream and it's just something that right, right out of the Hallmark, Hallmark channel, like as, when I read that, I'm like, wow, like if that would have gotten made, that would have just further supported all those people that said that they were turning into a kiddie band, I think, you know? It was interesting to get that much information on it. I thanks Julian for that. But, you know, it was it was it was such a interesting read in that sense. But in a way it's one of those things that again I have to echo Ken and say that I'm very glad that they didn't do that because it just that was really my first impression of that was just from reading it. Could you imagine what it would have been like if they actually filmed it? Well, I'm just looking at the uh the phrase is on the first page, and it's the basic theme of Behind the Mask is a pursuit or chase in which two attractive and wholesome teenage girls. Well, you lost me there because who wants wholesome? <laughs> wholesome? Exactly. Oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, going back, you know, that that wouldn't have worked. And, you know, just think about I was I was, you know, reading about these album covers, too. Um, and the, what they toned down the original Dynasty album cover, which they would have. They thought about 
having them in straight jackets, right? Yeah. Um, but they thought that was, oh, that was too much. And plus, I think uh, Ted Nugent or someone had a album cover with a straight jacket. But, you know, they should have yeah. just done it. Anyway, and then the other one, they really blew it with using the name Unmasked on, the, on that album. They could have mm. used it down, you know, for Lick It Up. They could have used it there. That would have been the perfect uh, album title for Lick It Up. They should have used something else. I didn't like the album cover of Unmasked from the standpoint of the storyline. It was colorful. Yeah, it was kind of cool. Oh, yeah, it's a comic book. I like comics and that sort of thing. But, but you know, it just... It's kind of lame, and the end of it, where you know the the guy says, "I still think they stink." You know why? Yeah, why? That's I would just not, the wrong thing to put on. I would not put that on my own album if I had an album out. You know, exactly. I would say they. I still, you know, wait a minute. It just said, "Wait a minute, these guys rule," and that would have yeah. been a better ending than I still think they stink. So, no, I mean, there's uh, a certain amount of irony, or you know, self, whatever. You wouldn't see a politician on the road handing out pins saying "I suck." You know, <laughs> just just yeah. not gonna, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're selling yourself, even though it may be true. And it may be true. It, pro- it is. It is the fifty percent of the perspective. But uh, you know, I, I seem to recall seeing a memo for alternative titles for Unmasked, or it may have been Dynasty. And it was Dynasty. They were going to call that Asylum. Well, I saw some other and have them in saw, the, saw a list, know, which made it make sense. Okay, so I, I can't remember whether it referred to this or or it's a dynasty, and both of the unmasked and dynasty I think are better titles than what was on that list. So they really didn't have much of a clue of what the hell to call their albums at this point either. So it, it's, yeah. it's it's kind of overbearing desperation, really. Yeah, well, I mean, Dynasty, Dynasty, in a sense, though, I thought was the better cover because it was a bit more simpler, a bit easier to take in when you look at it. Whereas Unmasked, I think the problem with that was just it was just too much on there. You know what I mean? Like there was busy. because it was yeah, it was too busy because it was a comic strip. It's like you literally have to go there and look at it and go like, well, what the heck is going on here? On here, like you want to literally go and kind of read it. But you know, it's I think Dynasty as a cover worked better. I think Unmasked didn't help itself with that cover at at all. And it's interesting that you brought up the straitjackets because, you know, us all being vinyl people, they have that one cover that's leaking around there where they have the picture of them where you can kind of still see them wearing the straitjackets underneath there. So Uh it's interesting that that they have that. They were still technically probably wearing it when they were making those pictures, right? So it's interesting. I think Unmasked is a beautiful cover. I think it's an interesting concept yeah, that isn't quite executed. It would have been better as maybe a little mini insert comic. Yeah, for, for, inside. For, oh, yeah. You know, maybe to just use a single panel like they did with the poster, you know, and sometimes, you know, somehow juggle that to be the album cover and use the yeah. panels on the inside, you know, whether it's a layout as a gatefold or, you know, a wrap around for an inner dust sleeve or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, or even maybe just as an insert little, you know what they're hearkening back to? They're going oh. back to the 78 cartoon, you know, comic books, the Marvel stuff. You know, they're still going for that age groups, you know. So, I mean, it make, we know why it's there, but it doesn't you work. Know, I, you know, you just made me think of something. You know, they, if they would have done that cover and had, a, like you said, a gatefold, and had we get to the point where okay they're going to see them unmasked, but 
the unmasked part is on the inside of the gatefold, and you know <laughs> nice. you get people to oh god, I got buy, I got to buy yeah. this it's, to see the, what they are, and then they'll you know of course. Yep. See, that that right there, <laughs> that's that right idea. there, yeah, that's that's a great idea, and that's what what Kiss was actually missing at this point. I think they needed people like you know you guys and us to think of these kind of ideas because wouldn't that have been a more alluring and captivating cover to go out and buy or a record to buy if you had that kind of a cover? I even liked Julian's idea better of having just the poster as the front cover instead yeah. of having the actual cover as an inside for the, maybe the sleeve or something. Like That's a much better idea than how they had it. I just think that Kiss at this point, even their people working for them just were running out of ideas or running out of inspiration for stuff because it just seemed like they just, we, you guys just thought of this now in like five, 10 minutes. And for them, God knows how long it took for them to come up with these covers that they had, you know? Yeah. So they, they got the concepts, but they maybe just didn't get it all put together, you know, just, just like the album. So I think we're pretty sure that the behind the mask of kiss and the kiss Halloween special were, we're, we're pretty fortunate that they, they didn't happen. Yeah. And we, we eventually get Kisteria in 2008. So, you know, that, that's, ki- that's kind of, that's kind of better. Poor little Eric Singer goes missing. Yeah. What, what a shame. <laughs> oh my gosh. So <laughs> find any- the trail of watches and you might find it. <laughs> <laughs> so, and any final thoughts on unmasked? I mean, you know, or, dynasty i mean there's so much that we can talk about with these albums you know we can always look at them from different perspectives and before we wrap up here do we want to say anything at 7 a.m tomorrow since this show will go out tonight um an announcement an announcement of what that is the question well beyond the kiss site and you notice uh i just noticed today or yesterday or i mean it was today they're promoting their um their was it their kiss army package right to the new 2016 and usually they do that right before they're going to announce like a tour or something Could and be wanted i don't know we'll have to wait and see <laughs> yeah yeah i think it is going to be because i mean I, have been, I even saw a couple of things on facebook and twitter today too where they had a picture of i think it was paul's uh boot from his costume on on a stage and I, that, that kind of almost wants to hint at being a tour of some sort. But, I mean, I've I've always been secretly hoping there's going to be another record, but, I mean, I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. Paul, can Kiss we have another record, please? Another record. Kiss conventions. Yeah, how about Kiss or, or even an acoustic tour of theaters? Hmm. That'd be interesting. They've been, they've been getting good reviews, though. Yeah, but I've got one thing I want to bring up. What the hell is going on with the band's introduction? Did you see the um, L.A. Kiss show, how it was introduced? And have you seen the trailer to the Kiss in Vegas movie? It's No. You wanted the best the Kiss. What, well, what, oh. happened the, what happened to the rest of it? You got the best, you mean? Yeah. There's no more you got the best on, on those two things. Really? So, so go and check those and fact check <laughs> me to, to see if I'm going deaf or becoming more stupid um because wow, like, that, that was really weird i mean i can understand you maybe ch- saving a second for a trailer or a hmm. teaser so just seems, interesting just seems odd but those uh little memes that are popping up everywhere i mean they all point to some live action of uh some description you know they're either on stage like paul's boot like you mentioned or in the changing room with the costumes hanging so 
Yeah. I hope so. I mean, I, and particularly if they come out this this way, I I've skipped too many shows of late that uh, I'm going. <laughs> I I would actually be I'd be interested, I think. De- <clears throat> depending on whether it falls on a day with soccer. <laughs> Our, <laughs> all right, so let's wrap this up because Alex is not coming back. I've tried and I've tried. Alex, I did try. I I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very trying as my wife would say. So (laughs) that's the episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Uh, We'd like to get your take on this subject. Obviously come over to the Facebook page or, you know, come over to the kiss FAQ message board and leave your opinion about the topic that we've uh, talked about today. You know, and and give us some ideas for things that you think we should be talking about as well, because, uh, you know, this is by the board for the board. So Alex, wherever you are, Ken, Mark, thank you very much for joining me today, and we will see you all in the future. Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again. 